Welcome to this installment of Knox County Public Library's podcast series. The following recording was made on November 7, 2007, and features Gerald Wood, Dean of Humanities at Carson Newman College, and Barbara Moore, Professor in the School of Journalism and Electronic Media at the University of Tennessee, as they discuss the adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird from a novel into a film. So first, this is uh, my good friend Barbara Moore from the University of Tennessee. And uh, I'm a professor in journalism and electronic media. Uh, I wrote a uh, edited a book uh, about Horton Foote's Trip to Bountiful, one of his movies for which he was nominated uh, for an Oscar for the screenplay. It was also a Broadway play and a television play. And uh, so that's how I got interested in him, was doing research on that. Uh, in the School of Journalism and Electronic Media, I teach uh, television programming courses and that's where my area of interest is. Um, I'm Jerry Wood. I've been at Carson Newman since about the time Nelda came, uh, <laughs> which was just a day or two before VHS started. Uh, and I'm the uh, Dean of Humanities and Chair of the English Department. Uh, I've actually edited two books on Horton Foote. One of them called us Selected uh, One Act Playbooks, which was published at SMU, where, where Barbara's book was published. Uh, also a case book with Garland Press, and then um, an overall interpreted book at LSU called Horton Foot in the Theater of Intimacy. Um, my latest and probably my proudest appointment is that I'm now the director of the Horton Foot Center for the Study of Theater and Film at Carson Newman College, uh, which just started this fall. So, uh, you know, back when we weren't allowed to do things and film was sort of a subversive act, now you can even major in film at Carson Newman and go to the Horton Foot Center. Uh, what we thought we would do is uh, Barbara will first talk a little bit about uh, the general problems of adaptation. She's an expert on this. She studied in a, in a brilliant book, which she didn't mention the title of, called Horton Foote's Three Trips to Bountiful. It's about a trip to Bountiful. Um, the process of taking something from literature and from a play and putting it into film. And then I'll talk a little bit about Horton Foote's career. And then after that, we'll finally settle in uh, in just a few minutes about To Kill a Mockingbird. We thought we'd talk a little bit about how Horton Foote got involved with this project. We'd talk about uh, the screenplay and how it's the same and different uh, from the book. We'll talk a little bit about what we know about the actual shooting of the film. And then thought we'd focus a little bit on uh, the influences of this film um, on sort of the history of film and the history of American culture. So, Barbara, you want to talk to them a little bit about the general problems and issues of transferring something from literature into film? Yeah, it's more difficult sometimes. Uh, you've all had the experience of going to see a movie thinking, I love the book. And then you go to the movie and you think, this movie has nothing to do with the book I read. It's, it's totally wrong. Uh, and you may wonder what happened. Taking something from one medium to another is a real problem. Uh, you go anywhere from uh, just borrowing the title and having nothing else there but the title to all the way where it's almost a literal interpretation. Uh, and neither one of those extremes works very well. Uh, readers are always disappointed when they get only a title and nothing else. And yet if you do it exactly right, then you're not taking advantage of a different medium. Uh, you're not really getting the full array of all the things that you can get from a different medium. So the trick is to take advantage of the new medium and to bring the correct things over to it. And to give you some ideas, 
usually you want to bring over the major characters but almost always it's very difficult to bring over all the small characters and you'll notice in uh, a trip to Battleful, you lose a lot of the townspeople who are cult. I mean, in uh, <laughs> it's terrible. In To Kill a Mockingbird, you lose all of the townspeople. You know, you lose a lot of the small, interesting stories, uh, especially of some of the little old ladies who are just fascinating. But they sort of get wiped out from the movie because the uh, the person adapting it, Horton Foote, decided to really focus on a few major characters, and that's really what you have to do for a film. Um, with plot, you almost always have to cut out some of the plot when you take it. And so this really, the novel has a very sprawling plot that goes in a lot of different directions. And initially, Horton Foote was very reluctant to take on this project. He was like, how can I take something that covers this many years, this many uh, different themes, and, and tie it all together? And so what he did was make the trial the focus of the, of the movie. And, and build the rest of the plot around it. Um, and with the characters, he made the family the focus of it. And, and once again, cut out some of the other characters. So you lose the town history and the family history, the scenes from the school, and instead what you get is the focus on the family, the focus on the trial. One of the most difficult things is to transfer over the tone of it, because that's uh, the charm of the novel. Uh, it, it's very difficult to capture that charm in a film. And I think he does a lot of that. Uh, there's a little softer edge to the characters in the movie. He doesn't have quite that uh, satirical eye that Harper Lee had. He's, he's not, it's a little kinder to them. He makes Atticus a little more heroic, a little more of a movie hero. But at the same time, he keeps that tone of outrage about civil rights and the violations of it. Uh, he also keeps the tone of nostalgia, that this is a small town that we'd all like to go back to if it were just a little better. And, and he keeps that up. Uh, he keeps the viewpoint. Uh, the narrator remains scout. And he chose for the emphasis, uh, instead of, you know, Harper Lee sort of looks at the entire town he focuses mainly on the family. Uh, so I think what he did was, uh, instead of cutting out, he just sort of pared things down, whittled a little bit. Uh, and, and I think there's no major element that you really, truly miss. I think he did an excellent job, and, and Harper Lee did also, of capturing the spirit and the feeling of the novel, of making those choices of where to cut and what to include. Okay, so the, my big question is, who is Horton Foote? Horton Foote um, was born in uh, 1916 in a little town, town called Wharton, Texas, which is a little bit south and a little bit east of Houston. Um, sort of if you go a little bit toward Galveston from Houston and then go directly south, you'll be in Wharton, Texas. Uh, he lived there with his loving parents and uh, two brothers until one of them was uh, later killed in World War II, but he was one of three brothers in a kind of extended family where the grand, uh, grandmothers and the aunts were extremely important. Uh, at about the age of 16, he decided that he wanted to be an actor. And he first went uh, to Dallas and then he went to Pasadena to be an actor, really thinking probably he would go into the movies. Uh, and in the late 1930s, 
He then moved from California uh, to New York City, uh, where he was pursuing a career as an actor. And he got involved with a, a group called the American Actors Company. Uh, and one of, the, one of the goals of the American Actors Company was to develop new American plays. And so they, as a kind of improvisational exercise, they asked all the actors to go home and write a short sketch about their hometown. And Horton was one of the people who did this. Um, Agnes DeMille pulled him aside and said, you've got talent, young man, you should pursue this. Um, then they put on his play, and as Horton says it with some humor, uh, they put on a play of his, and the review said, what a wonderful play. I just don't like the acting of Mr. Foote. <laughs> so he said he took the summer to have some successes as an actor to prove that person wrong and then gave up acting and decided that he should be a writer. He wrote in New York um, until the mid-1940s. He was pretty successful at that, had one play on Broadway, uh, and got <laughs> married um, in 1944. He was out of the war because he had problems with his back. Um, but he felt he didn't know his craft, so he went to Washington, D.C., worked there for four years, and it really was a teacher in a school. Came back to New York and got involved simultaneously with theater and with um, television. And so a number of his plays were actually written for early television, or what we now somewhat nostalgically call the golden age of television. And he was working simultaneously in the theater uh, and in television. He did have one brief experience uh, with making a movie in the mid-1950s, but really this film was his first uh, big success, the first real um, involvement that he had with making a movie. It became sort of a problem for him for a couple of reasons. One is it was taking him away from theater, and the other thing was um, everybody said, well, you're a really good adapter of other people's work, so why don't you start adapting all these other novels? Uh, when that didn't work well, he sort of got it somewhat into independent filmmaking, but he was always interested in theater. Um, and so by the 1970s, his plays were starting to get staged. He was starting to have sort of a second phase uh, uh, as a theater person. Theater is really his first love. But by the end of the 1970s, he was also pursuing independent film, uh, with the, particularly with uh, Robert Duvall, who by then was a good friend of his and films like uh, Trip to Bountiful um, and Tomorrow and other films were made in the 70s and 80s. But he's continued to be involved with the theater, and he not only won the Academy Award for To Kill a Mockingbird for adaptation, he won for Tender Mercies in 1983 uh, for the best original screenplay, and then in the mid-1990s he also won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, uh, so one of the few people who's won both a Pulitzer Prize and an Academy Award. He's now in his early 90s. He did receive an honorary doctorate from Carson Newman two years ago, and uh, we uh, expect to have him back to the first Horton Foot Film Festival around Thanksgiving next year. Um, that's basically who Horton Foot is. And he's still writing. Yeah, he's, he's working on two screenplays right now. He had a play that was very successful called Dividing the Estate that was on, um, on Broadway and just finished. Uh, and a very good adaptation of uh, to kill, um, The Trip to Bountiful, very successful, starring uh, Lois Smith, has just been moved from, um, from New York and will be played in uh, Chicago in the spring. Uh, he's writing two screenplays right now, one with Denzel Washington uh, and another independent one that he's done uh, called, they've got a working title of, of Durham, which is about uh, a family in Durham, North Carolina. 
So he's very active in the work that he's doing. Um, uh, we'll switch back in a second, but let me say um, a little bit of the story, and Barbara can probably add to this, about how Horton got involved with this. Uh, Horton and his wife Lillian, who died, unfortunately, in the early 1990s, had a, 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 a wonderful marriage and a wonderful relationship. And um, Horton gives Lillian all the credit for both uh, discovering Robert Duvall and also for his involvement in the book. As he likes to tell the story, um, you know, he was working away and his wife came to him and said, uh, I've been reading this novel and I think you'll really like it. And he basically ignored her. And uh, she came back a couple of days later and she said, now, don't get irritable about this, but I really think you need to read this novel. So he read the novel and he really liked it, but he still said he didn't want to do it. And uh, Alan Pakula, who was a producer, and, and, and uh, Robert Mulligan were smart enough to say to him, look, why don't you just come down and meet Harper Lee? And uh, after you talk to Harper Lee, if you still don't want to do it, we won't bother you anymore. And so he went down, and as he likes to say it, well, I met Harper Lee, and of course I fell in love. <laughs> and um, Harper liked him, uh, and she's had nothing but good things to say about about Horton and the involvement. They still talk regularly. Uh, coincidentally, just before he came to get the honorary degree at Carson Newman, somebody did an interview with Harper Lee because all these, these two movies were coming out about her life. And they said, oh, you have a relationship with Horton Foote. You see him? And she said, well, I see him every once in a while in New York. And they said, well, how is he doing? She said, have you seen Horton Foote recently? I mean, he just gets better looking all the time. <laughs> I mean... He's like God, but better looking. <laughs> so um, that's Horton and how he got involved uh, in the making of To Kill a Mockingbird. And now maybe we finally can focus a little bit more on the story. I, I think if, if you read much of Horton Foote's work, you can see why some of the themes in To Kill a Mockingbird are very appealing to him and why Harper Lee wanted him to do the adaptation. Uh, they are people, I think, who saw the world in very similar kinds of ways. Uh, one of the themes in a lot of his work is the importance of family and the importance of place. And in uh, Horton Foote's mind, uh, in the minds of its characters, uh, for some of them, they can't, they they can never be happy unless they have a family unless they have a home place, a place where they belong. Uh, and so this to them is of paramount importance. And another sort of theme, though, is that from these characters, it's never very easy to get a family and a home. They have to work very, very hard at it. Uh, and they have to fight for it, show great courage. And they have to learn to accept the fact that what they're going to get isn't perfect, that it's not going to be the perfect family, it's not going to be the perfect home. Uh, but to them, it's important to have what they can find. And so for this, I, part of what's going on, I think, in the novel is that Scout is looking at her family and saying, you know, it's not a perfect family. We're minus a mother. You know, this, this is not the perfect family. And as she looks around the town, she realizes it's not the perfect town. It, it's not that ideal little place that felt very safe growing up. But now as she looks at some of the inhabitants, she sees that they're not perfections, that they have major flaws in them. And so she's got to decide whether she wants to accept her family as it is and the town as it is. And I think those are themes that Horton Foote felt 
very comfortable working with. Uh, those are themes he's dealt with over and over again. And you can see him working those out in the screenplay. Yeah. Looks like we planned this. We <laughs> <laughs> had dinner together, we didn't plan this. Uh, yeah, it's a perfect segue into what I, I spent about, it took me about a week one time. I had a James Still Fellowship um, at the University of Kentucky, and I spent a whole week reading the novel and watching the movie and seeing how much I could find in the um, in the novel. And basically, Horton changes thinks some things around. Probably the, the thing that's most obvious is that he took basically a story that lasts maybe over a three-year period and reduces it to a little bit over a year. Um, but the other thing is that it, when you read it, it's remarkable how he is. He likes, it comes from the film, but he got into the skin so much of Harper Lee that that he tried to use her words, that he was very careful of phrases and her phrases, the character's phrases, and even if she cha he changed the place or the character, he still tried to use her, her language uh, all the way through. So you can see how delicate he is. But the other thing, and I think the thing that was remarkable to me, is there's only one scene um, in the whole film that that is completely Horton Foote. Uh, and when I got to know him better, I asked him about this. And um, let me set it up a little bit by saying that Horton, when he was growing up, lived in a little kind of bungalow house in Wharton that the family still owns. And they don't call them porches, they call them galleries in that part of Texas, in southeast Texas. And Horton used to, um, as he remembers it, uh, be inside of his bedroom with the window open, especially in hot times, they didn't have air conditioning, and he would listen to his parents and aunts and uncles talk on the porch so that a lot of the stories and voices that he heard when he was growing up were when he was in a bedroom listening through a window to the adults talking on the gallery telling stories, and listening to that was part of his life. So, oh, this works. Let me show you the one scene in this, and it is about, it's about family. This is right after there's been a brief talk um, between Atticus and Scout about who's going to get the stuff. That's Horton Foot. That's not Harper Lee. Check out this scene from Tender Mercies, uh, which is an original screenplay by Foot. This is, if you know this story, 
this is where um, Mac is remarried. And he married a, a, a woman whose, um, whose husband has died in the Vietnam War. And um, the boy is having some problems at school because they, they're picking on his father, the one who's dead and the one that he's got now. And um, it's not explained why, but the mother decides to uh, help the boy know about his father by taking him to the grave. Coming with us, Matt? No, Molly. This is again Robert Duvall, if you don't know that movie. Tess Harper. Here it is. I couldn't put down the day he died because the army didn't know. Was there a big crowd at his funeral? Yeah, there was. Did I go? No. Why not? Because you were to look. Did people cry at the funeral? Yes, they did. Did you? Yes, I did. What Barbara was saying is that that this is a story about family and about family that's broken and then gets re, in some ways, reconfigured. Um, and so this is, I think, a good example of that. And it was what Horton wanted to write about. The only backstory that he wanted to tell and focus on was how these children would feel about the fact that they didn't know their mother. In this case, the boy didn't know his father, and the curiosity the children have about that, or as I've written about, that they need an emotional place to live, and in order to have that emotional place, they need to know about a past, not so that they can go live in it and be nostalgic about it, but so they can have a degree of clarity, and then they understand who they are, and as Barbara was saying, what their connections are, what this family's about, so that they can then grow from that kind of experience. Uh, one other thing before I throw it back to Barbara again that, that, that I think is a, a, a curious thing, and I think it's very interesting. Horton says that growing up is by far the, his, the most influential novel uh, on his life was uh, Huckleberry Finn. Uh, it's really interesting uh, to see that you have a kind of mirror image of the situation that you have in Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn has an alcoholic, abusive father. Uh, that he needs to get away from in order to grow. And in order to um, replace that father, he has a man who is very knowledgeable, who sets good boundaries for him, and who is, expresses his deep emotion, who happens to be a black man. And therefore, Huck's problems of parenting and, and family are connected to issues of race. It's interesting in that Horton might be attracted to To Kill a Mockingbird because you have a, a, a reverse image in which a young woman, she is a one young woman when actually she tells the story, that's something else we'll talk about. But as she was growing up, had lost her mother. And it's, it's emphasized in here from time to time, the role that Calpurnia plays in her life, because the person who's actually mothering her, and if you read the novel, you see this, because the other women are too, they're too feminine for her. Uh, and she's a sort of a tomboy, and we would now call her an independent, somewhat liberated young woman. Um, the person who brings order in her life and tells her what she can and can't do is actually Calpurnia, who's a, who's a black woman who's supposed to be in the house. So that's an interesting thing, how the, the racial issues 
which are being dealt with and is the primary melodrama of the story, is actually played out against the family. So, Barbara's right. <laughs> uh, and, and I want to talk a little about Hortonfoot's writing style, which is fairly consistent in, uh, over the years. You know, when you have a close to a 70-year uh, career, uh, he, he's got a very definite style as well as definite themes. And I, he, while he uses Harper Lee's words frequently, he uses them in his style. Uh, he does a wonderful job of adapting her to his. His characters tend to be uh, stoic. They don't go into, you know, they don't have long hysterical fits about things. They don't go into long speeches, shaking their fists and berating God. Uh, you know, they, they don't have uh, big, glamorous kind, you know, not the kind of thing that an actress can look at and think, I'll win an Academy Award if I deliver this speech. Uh, so his characters tend to be sort of stoic. Uh, they suffer. They're happy. But within what I think most of us would think of as the range of normalcy, most of us don't display all of our emotions all of the time. Uh, and so you see in this that the characters, even though they're going through great stresses, uh, tend to be sort of muted in their responses to it. Gregory Peck does a wonderful job of suggesting all sorts of emotions as do the children. But once again, there's not this big hysterical speech from him saying, this is right, this is wrong, and I'm going to, you know. Uh, so it's very much in the Horton Foote style of a quiet tone. Uh, and to me, uh, this is the way real people are. You know, most of us don't come up with the perfect speech at the perfect time. We all... Yeah, we all love that scene where the dying person says the right thing, but I'm pretty sure if I was dying, I, I couldn't come up with a line worth quoting. Uh, you know, and, and we all think when we talk to our children or to our friends that we can give them a speech. That, but it's very difficult. So I think his characters are very realistic in that they say what they mean, and but they say it simply in a straightforward kind of way. And, and I think that's part of what resonates with us as we look at the movie, the feeling that these people really could exist and that we could know them. Yeah, we keep talking about that from a bunch of different angles. Um, I was lucky enough to be at the 25th um, anniversary of the, of the making of this film. It was a program in Galveston, Texas, uh, and I was there. Unfortunately, uh, Gregory Peck wasn't able to be there, but all, the other major characters were there. Um, actors were there, and including it was um, Mary Badham, who plays Scout in, in this. And it's interesting, you were talking about realistic, how they keep, especially you have people who are trained in, in method acting, if you know what that is. I mean, they try to create an environment that is emotionally real. Uh, she said that, that all the way through the making of the film, that the guy who played uh, Yule would, would just sit around on the outside and he never was allowed to do anything but glare at the action and say nothing to the children. And she remembered by the end of the making of the film, they're all terrified of this man who said nothing and just sat around and looked at him. And she said, of course, the last day when they rapped, why well, he came over and introduced himself, and he was really a nice man. <laughs> but they created that environment for the, for the children uh, so that they would feel that. And, and I think that's one of the things that Barb was talking about is that kind of as part of Horton's style is that, that, that sense of authenticity, that sense of, of getting actors to act in a way that seems true to life. Um, I remember once in the, being with Horton and Lillian, 
uh, and they were criticizing an actress who I won't name um, for her role in one of Horton's films. And I said, what was wrong with that production? And, and Lillian just sort of snapped at me and said, well, in that scene where she cries, she had to fake it. <laughs> Meaning that, you know, somebody had to come in and put something in her eyes to make her cry. And it's like, that would be the ultimate thing, is not to be able to use genuine emotion and produce real tears. Well, oh, and that reminds me of a trip to Bountiful. Geraldine Page, who started it, said uh, the director told her, you're only allowed three times to cry. No more. That's it. The limit. She said, so I had to act without crying. Yeah, and then that suppressed emotion would, would really come out. Um, but this is, again, off on The Tender Mercies, which is a film that I spend a lot of time being sort of obsessed with. Um, but the, the same thing occurred. Uh, Tess Harper told me that there's a scene in which Mac goes to um, see his ex-wife, and he comes back, and, and his new wife is ironing. And she asked him a bunch of questions because she's jealous and threatened by this kind of thing. She said just before they started the scene, Duvall came walking into the into the set, and uh, he started being mean to Tess Harper. And Tess Harper said, "Yeah, nobody can get to me. I didn't do anything." So just before we shot, he went over and picked the nicest, sweetest script girl, and just attacked her mercilessly. And he said that. Now they, she said, that, that really made me angry. And then they said, okay, start the scene. And all the way through that scene, you can see that she's got this real tight-lipped attitude about, well, you know, you were married to her, and she's a big star. And Tess Harper said that's what Duvall was doing, was setting up an, an undertone there that would come out in her acting. And it was okay with Duvall that she was angry with him through that whole scene about something that they just did because then there would be this kind of emotional, authentic emotional undertow that could be used in the scene. Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that you see in To Kill a Mockingbird is that you, to do a Horton Foot script correctly, you have to be a great actor because you can't use the gimmicks. You can't use the tears and the fist pounding and all of that. Uh, you have to say the lines as they are, and they're very simple very powerful lines, but you have to bring to it that intensity, uh, that sincerity, uh, without overacting. And uh, so I think that's one of the real gifts here. And it's one of the reasons why adaptations fail sometimes is, you know, the, that even though you have a great script, you might have actors or directors who have their own vision and do whatever they please, uh, leaving the script in the dust. Uh, here's one where Clearly, Horton Foote's director and producer respected him uh, and left the script alone for the most part. He's thinking a little trimming on it, but left it alone. And the way Hollywood works frequently is that the studio has the final cut and decides what the final film will look like. And fortunately for this film, the director and producer kept the final cut so they could stay true to what Horton Foote wanted to do. He had some unpleasant experiences. <laughs> yeah, later, yeah. Yeah, and I think in a way this film sort of spoiled him, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think you know, right. he, he started expecting that kind of respect, and, and usually writers don't get that. But this is one film I think that actually everything worked together. The writer, the producer, the director, and the stars all understood what was going on and how to uh, create that vision and sustain it. 
Yeah, that's what Barbara was just saying. Is exactly what Duvall repeatedly says about. He's asked a lot about. You're in a lot of Horton Foot movies and plays, and you know what's the secret? And he said, just and he's very, <laughs> he's very simple but very strong about it. He just says, don't ever push it. Don't ever push it. Just let it have its own life. Don't try to push it too much. You know that that's the key, I think. And there have been, for example, there was a, a television film of his, a film adaptation of Habitation of Dragons, and it's really quite bad because every person is doing what they think Southern characters do and being <laughs> overly dramatic. And it's just amazing how far that is from these films that really work. Whereas Duvall said, you just don't push it. You might be interested in how Duvall got interested in this. Again, Horton gives the credit to you know to his late wife. Uh, there was a play of, of Horton's uh, called Midnight Caller. It had nothing to do with the television show. There was a, a, a film that Horton had written in the early 50s. And uh, Duvall acted in this. He played a, a guy who <clears throat> basically was in love with this girl, but their parents wouldn't let him get married. And so every night at midnight he'd get drunk and come up behind her window and yell up on the second floor about how much he loved her, creating a big disturbance in the small town. And the story is really hers, where she has to learn to give him up because he's become a drunk now and that he really can't function and he's not a possibility and she has to pick somebody else uh, to live with responsibly. But twice in the, in the doing of this play, apparently, as Horton tells the story, people ran out to the ticket booth and said, you better, you know, you better call it cop or somebody, this guy's lost it, he's drunk on the stage and uh, he's not acting um, that, that's the ideal for method acting, is you, you get that and um, you know, the other, the other reality is that Robert Duvall doesn't drink <laughs> uh, and yet he played it that, that powerfully um, and, and what happened is that they needed somebody who could have that kind of strong presence when they were going to do Boo Radley and as Horton tells the story, Lillian said to Horton, you remember that young guy who was in Midnight Call? And that's how, this is the first, the first role in the film of Robert Duvall, and that's how Duvall got involved in filmmaking. It was thanks to Horton's wife. And, and you know, I guess it's getting, we want to let you have yeah, some right. time to do questions. I do want to point out that one of the things about the movie is it came out of, at a time uh, when civil rights was moving up as a top topic of conversation in the United States, that uh, it's sort of... Um, hit at the right time when people were asking questions, making observations, and starting to uh, go beyond that and starting to demand action. And so this movie had a powerful, uh, it both reflected and I think helped reinforce the movement that was going on then. And the other question that you might ask then is, you know, where, this is Har Harper Lee's story, so where is Horton Foote politically, um, you know? give you two pretty direct answers. One is he was always very proud of his father. His father um, developed a clothing store in the small town of Wharton, Texas. And when it was uh, not the politically thing, smart thing to do, uh, certainly not good for the family money, his, his father um, catered to, to black people as well as white people in the small town. And everybody knew that there were some, then some white people who wouldn't use his services. And Horton's father didn't care. And Horton remembered helping his father a lot on Saturdays uh, with the people who picked cotton, for example, black and white, who would come in and get their clothes made at Horton's father's place. And Horton was very proud of his father being ahead of his time uh, in serving both blacks and white in his clothing store. Um, I once asked Horton's uh, 
second son, Walter, who I know pretty well, uh, how he would define Horton's political views. And he said, he's a Hubert Humphrey Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) When you make a film, it's very complicated. It's a collaborative effort. And I know a lot about Tender Mercies, about how things happen, and you would never guess. You know, for example, Horton Foote won um, the Academy Award for the screenplay for Tender Mercies. And in Tender Mercies, the... um, the title of the motel, the the name of the motel is the Mariposa. And I thought, boy, this is a really interesting name. What does it mean? So I looked it up and I said, gee, it really fits. And I congratulated Horton on it. I said, you know, that was really great. And he said, well, I didn't do it. I said, who did it? He, can, he said, you can ask Beresford if you want to, but Beresford probably didn't do it either. And I asked Beresford and he said, no, I didn't do it, but ask Janine Opelwall. She's the designer of the film. I'm sure she did it. So I got Janine. Uh, she actually wrote me a, a letter, and Janine said, um, in addition to being um, you know, a costume designer and set designer, uh, I'm an amateur lepidopterist, uh, and, and I'm interested in um, butterflies. This, I was thinking around what would be a, this is sort of close to Mexico, and what could be a Spanish word, and I thought the Spanish word for butterfly is mariposa. That's sort of what he is. When you think of a butterfly, you talk about something that comes out of a cocoon and has a second life, and this is his second life, so I call it the Mariposa. Horton Foote won the Academy Award. (laughs) Thank you. You're very attentive. Thank you.